Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, here we go. It's Monday. That's the scramble. Uh, no Kion Wolf today. She's uh, taking a few days off, uh, although you will hear her on tomorrow's show. Tomorrow's show is all about dinosaurs. It's from the Peabody Museum in New Haven, where there will be dinosaurs watching us as we speak. Uh, but that's tomorrow. Today we're doing the scramble, which means we're going to run through a bunch of topics that kind of popped up over, over the weekend for us. Uh, right now, what we're going to do is talk to uh, Lowell Wecker, former U.S. Senator, former governor of Connecticut, uh, and currently somebody who spends a fair amount of his time wondering what happened to the American political system that he used to participate in, and very specifically what happened to his old home party, the Republican Party, where he spent uh, most of his political life. Uh, he wrote about that for The Current uh, over the weekend, and we're going to talk to him about that now. Uh, Governor, welcome back to our airwaves. Good to talk to you. So um, when you write about this and you say that in some ways you feel as though the moment at which Donald Trump uh, is consecrated in Cleveland as the nominee of the Republican Party will represent the culmination of something, what do you think it's the culmination of? Well, it certainly is the culmination or the, the Gata Damarung of the Republican Party as we know it. That that process has been going on, oh, certainly for the last two decades. And now it reaches its uh, uh, final end in this ridiculous scenario of an entertainer being the candidate for president of the United States uh, in one of the major parties. Uh, you know, it's the, uh, it's the old scenario, as far as I'm concerned, of Walt Kelly, the famous cartoonist, we have met the enemy and he is us mm -hmm. in the sense that we've gotten to this point because nobody in America is participating in the process. Or at least, let's put it this way, right now I think we're at about 52 percent for presidential elections. So a majority is, what, 23.6, somewhere around there. And within that narrow percentage, it's possible for any nutcase <laughs> become or incompetent person to become president of the United States, and that's where we are now with with uh, Trump, and to a lesser extent, uh, with uh, Clinton and Sanders. Well, let me um, let's talk about Trump and the Republicans a little bit more for a second, and, and let me ask you a question, and then t just tell you what I mean by it. My, I guess my question is: Does Trump represent the fruition, the culmination of this process of ideological purification, or does he reject the the, the re does he represent the rejection of it? I mean, in a way, if you looked at say Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan is probably the embodiment of American, you know, pr pretty far right conservatism. He's not in the Freedom Caucus. He's not a Tea Party guy, but he sort of, you know, stands for uh, a lot of those things. So when Paul Ryan tries to go to sleep at night, he dreams of cutting entitlements. He dreams of refabricating Social Security and privatizing it. Uh, he doesn't dream of using the bargaining power of Medicare to negotiate better drug prices. Trump does. And, and, and in many ways, some of Trump's ideas seem like a rejection uh, of the tea partification uh, of, the, of the Republican parties. In, in other ways, he seems exactly like the culmination of it 
Well, I mean, I think that it's all right to say that he's open to some ideas that are, are good, but the, the matters on which he has been outspoken are horrendous. Uh, just the idea of uh, his negativism toward uh, blacks, toward uh, uh, Hispanics, toward women. Uh, I mean, I go down the checklist sure. of groups in the United States. By the time you're through with who he hates, uh, <laughs> you know, there's, there's probably nobody left. Uh, no, I, uh, uh, I cannot accept the fact that somebody of his ilk, he's a bigot, mm-hmm. uh, uh, can be the leader of the greatest nation in the world. I mean, the United States was built on broadening the ranks and the opportunities for all people. I don't get that message in, uh, from Donald Trump. I had a run-in with this guy when I was uh, uh, governor of uh, Connecticut. Uh, he uh, wanted to build a casino in Connecticut, and I said, you can't, because that right belongs to the Mashantucket Pequot Indians. And he said, well, they're not Indians. I said, well, why aren't they? Uh, why is that so? And he said, because they're black. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, was a historical matter where the disenfranchised Indians intermarried with the disenfranchised blacks, Negroes in Connecticut. So, yes, they are black, but it doesn't make any difference. And so I called him a bigot for that reason, and he got pretty exercised about it. But this, it only shows that 20 years ago he was the same guy that he is now. He could try to moderate himself into the center as he comes close to the nomination. But the real Donald Trump has been out there for a long time. Uh, I I don't disagree with you about any of that, but I do wonder what this insurgency is all about, because obviously uh, with no voters, no followers, uh, then there's no leader. There's no Trump. And and it seems to me that a lot of the people who are backing Trump right now, if you listed 10 of his positions, they'd probably agree with five of them and maybe even violently disagree with the other five. And I wonder if the insurgency itself isn't just an attack on elites on establishments, you know, I mean, not to compare Trump to Teddy Roosevelt because they're nothing alike, but, you know, in, in 1912, th- there was an argument going on about who controls this party, the elites or the people. And I see a little of that going on right now. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think the Republican Party itself has lost its way so that uh, a man like Trump can come along and appeal to those that have been forgotten. And that's the problem. I don't deny the fact that uh, both parties have sort of distanced themselves from the reality that is America. And whether it's the more conservative view of the Republicans or liberal view of the Democrats, they're not paying attention to people's needs. I agree with that. But what I can't agree with is to have a demagogue come along and, and spout some words which he never believed in and doesn't believe in now in order to gain high public office. We're talking to Lowell Weger, former U.S. senator and former governor of Connecticut. So let's game this out a little bit. All right. Let's imagine, um, as is still the probability, polls notwithstanding, that Trump loses this, this election because, as you've said, he has polarized himself. He's put himself on the other side of the fence from so many dem- demographic constituencies. It's hard to imagine him winning a national election. So let's say that he loses and you've got four years, presumably, of President Hillary Clinton. What are the Republicans? do either during or after those four years? Is the party just in splinters, or do they put it all together and, and maybe run a Paul Ryan four years later? 
Yeah, I think that's 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 what they have to do. I mean, I don't expect to see a liberal Jack Javits or a Lowell Weicker or Clifford Case, you know, be the type of candidate the Republicans are going to gravitate to. They're going to gravitate to a conservative candidate, and I have no problem with that. I suspect the candidate will definitely be right of center. And certainly in, in Ryan, you have that man, and you also have a man with a great deal of experience. But what has to happen, you have to have the contention with Ryan that fashions compromise so that you have something a little less than a far-right solution. Now we get to my friends in the Democratic Party. I mean, they, they've lost it also. Hillary Clinton is totally disingenuous. Uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, with his uh, uh, judging of his own party and his, and his rhetoric, is splintering it. So there's nothing much to, to choose from in, on the Democratic side. And I think you've seen the latest polls. People are shocked that Hillary Clinton has lost her wide margin over Trump mm-hmm. and is equal with them and a couple of polls behind them. Uh, it's because the Democrats do not offer a choice. We can, we can uh, mirror this national situation right here in Connecticut. Here we are, one of the, used to be one of the wealthiest states in the Union, splintered apart, deficit upon deficit upon deficit, tax raise after tax raise, and all because the Republicans do not have any office in the state of Connecticut. Mm. Not in the state Senate, not in the state House, not in the governorship. So there is no contention that fashions the types of compromises that we used to have when I was in the state legislature and Democrats and Republicans shared the responsibility of, of Connecticut's government. So until that happens, until that happens, you're not going to have great action on the national scene. You've got to have a Republican Party that contend with the Democrats or vice versa, and that have to fashion compromises. That's why I'm not afraid of a poll, Ryan, or anybody on the conservative side. I also want to see the Democrats come up with candidates that you know can, can perform. It's too bad Joe Biden's not running. He certainly would have been that kind of candidate. It, it does seem that on the Democratic side, we're, we're seeing a different kind of dying scream. And, and I do feel as though we probably won't see a nominee like Hillary Clinton, uh, particularly if she were to lose this election, which is, you know, certainly possible. As you say, the yep. polls are, are very close. If she were to lose, I don't think you'll see a, a candidate like her. And what I wonder, since uh, you and your memories and in your writing go back to Barry Goldwater, I sometimes think of Bernie Sanders as the Barry Goldwater of the left. You know, he's got very, well, very— He's got very, yeah, very strong positions, but in a way, he ultimately can't make them palatable himself. He kind of needs, you know, kind of Reagan came along and put a happier face on some of Goldwater's ideas. And I do wonder if that's what will happen to the Democratic Party. They'll run a candidate four or eight years from now who's a lot like Bernie Sanders, but a little bit more of a politician, a little bit more of a salesperson. Yeah, well, don't forget, I, I, I knew Barry Goldwater very well. Right up until the end of his days, he lived in uh, Phoenix, uh, Arizona, where my sister lived. So I got to see a lot of him. And at the end of his life, you would categorize him as a moderate Republican, not the far right that sought the presidency. Mm-hmm. Over the years, Barry Goldwater gradually moderated his position. Uh, as a matter of fact, many of them on constitutional amendments, he joined with me in the, uh, in, in the United States Senate. So uh, that has to happen. Uh, you went through that period where McGovern 
wrecked the Democratic Party as much as I like George McGovern. Nice man. And you're going through a period now where Republicans are also destroying their own party. I think sooner or later, sooner or later, they're going to start talking to each other. Don't forget, we are the ones that ultimately suffer from this. Mm -hmm. They don't even talk to each other. The House and the Senate refuse to talk to President Obama. Mm -hmm. What the hell kind of governing is that? Well, it isn't. That's the whole point. And, and our national government, whether it be Republicans or Democrats, have to go ahead and communicate and fashion the compromises that make government work. That will happen, I suspect, after this next election, because I think both sides are going to get told to take a walk. Can you imagine a Trump presidency? I mean, can can you imagine how that play, do you picture him being impeached in his second year or well, I mean, what do you think would happen? Well, we would no longer be the greatest nation on earth. I mean, the man doesn't have the basic knowledge in foreign policy or domestic to guide the United States of America. You know, I get back now to the to the main point which I've made with many of my friends. As long as the United States of America does not vote, we're going to get idiots out there for our candidates. And right now, the voting in a presidential election is about 52% of the population. And probably for a United States senator, it's in the 40s, and for a congressman, in the 30s. So you do not get the best of America. You get every one-issue candidate uh, or somebody that has a lot of money. And that and that's it. That should not be the United States of America. You know, uh, Governor, one thing that I've been thinking lately watching Connecticut is that, uh, you know, as you say, the Republicans have not won an election in Connecticut, even at the congressional level. I think 20, 2006 would have been the last time they won some a congressional district or a governor's race. Since then, it's been all losses. But I, I do feel in 2018, if they run the right candidate, given the level of disenchantment that there is right now with the chaos at the General Assembly and the inability to get our fiscal house in order, it, I, I could see a Republican governor in 2018. What's your thinking about that? Oh, I think it could happen, but I think there has to also be a change of attitude state of Connecticut. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they have to, in other words, moderate and attune themselves to the demographic, which is Connecticut. Connecticut is a blue-collar state in the main. Mm -hmm. You have pockets of wealth down in Greenwich and Darien. Uh, I ought to know I came from that area, mm -hmm. and that was very helpful. But until the Republicans are able to take the cities of the state, they're not going to win an election. I think it is possible to elect a Republican governor in 2018, but it's got to be somebody of a totally different mindset than most of the Republicans that are serving right now. I forgot what it was, but the, the, the old Republican chairman, uh, uh, Jerry Labriola, uh, I got along with well, even though I wasn't a member of the party, we talked all the time and I enjoyed his company and what he had to say. The new chairman just went off on me the other day. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> I've never met the man. Uh, I don't know what he is, but he, he was criticizing me for something in a philosophical sense. Well, I think philosophy is great as long as it's a moderate philosophy. Anything to the extreme, and the Republicans don't win. So if they're prepared to go ahead and, and run candidates for the House and the Senate and for governor that are of a moderate nature, uh, they, they can win elections in the state of Connecticut. I think, if I'm not mistaken, you, you can correct me, 
I think I was the last statewide Republican to, to, win, to win an election. I know I, I won the governorship as an independent, but all my other election wins were as a Republican. Mm-hmm. And I think the Republicans forget that as they go ahead and take pot shots at me, which is, you know, I don't mind, but I, I'd like to see him win because I think we would all benefit of an, of an equal contest between Republicans and Democrats. Yeah, I hate ever to correct you, but there was this fellow, Roland, who won some statewide elections. Ah, uh, yeah, you're right. And, yeah, then, the, 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 well, and then a lady named include, Jody Rell, she won in 2006, too. She won I, I don't include felons uh, uh, <laughs> in, in my summary. Jody Rell's a lovely lady, yeah. and she deserves great credit, and I wish her happiness. And I gather she's going to Florida for the now. Right, exactly. So I'm going to let you go here, uh, although I'm sure you and I will be talking over the summer. I'll give you one last thing to chew on, though. When you look at the way the primary went in Connecticut, the Republican primary, Trump, Trump's strength to an astonishing degree ran right down the Naugatuck River or right down Route 8. And in those towns, I'm talking about Waterbury, Naugatuck, and then all those little towns down through the Naugatuck Valley, he was doing 70% wins, you know, not 55, not 70% wins. So it goes to your point that Connecticut is in many ways a blue-collar state where, to, to whatever degree, Trump is resonating with a kind of blue-collar voter. Boy, you can see it right there just in, in the numbers down that spinal column. Well, I'll tell you, that, that's a, that is a very important demographic and one to, to keep in mind. But I think uh, my main message to your listeners, whether they're Republican or Democrat, you better get on uh, the, the field and get your jerseys dirty in this business called politics. In other words, scrap it out. You can't you can't enjoy what we've got by sitting in the stands and waving flags and cheering. All right. Uh, great message from Lowell Wecker, former U.S. senator, former governor, getting ready for a lovely summer here in Connecticut. When we come back, has some offhanded remark that somebody made to you, has it just festered in your breast for decades? It, now it's time to tell Henry Alford what that was. We live in a political world. Courage is a thing of the past. The houses are haunted. Children are unwanted. The next day could be your last. We live in a political world. The one we can see and feel. So... If you've ever seen the David Mamet play American Buffalo, you perhaps remember it begins with the character Teach, uh, who's the protagonist of the play. He's a surly, thin-skinned, petty criminal. And he comes storming into this shop where his two friends are, and he's in this, he's strangled with rage. Uh, he's, He's so profane and so out of his mind with anger that it's almost difficult to figure out what has triggered this incident. But gradually we realize that he's been across the street in the diner where they all hang out. And he's taken a piece of toast uh, off of the plate of a woman he knows very well, another one of their confederates whose name is Ruthie. And Ruthie has, in a certain tone of voice, said, oh, help yourself. Uh, And that has set uh, Teach off. I think that might qualify uh, as the kind of offhand remark, maybe not as lingering and festering as some, but the kind of offhand remark that our next guest, our frequent guest, uh, Henry Alford, whenever we need to talk to people about modern manners, we get Henry Alford to do it for us. He's a journalist, humorist, and author of several books, including Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That? A Modern Guide to Manners. And in the New York Times, uh, he has written recently about this problem, the problem of the offhand insult. So, Henry, set this up for us. Give, give us a sense of uh, what we what we're, we're not talking about somebody who's directly in your face insulting you. 
No, probably not. Probably this is a sort of unintentional swipe. Uh, and very often it comes from someone who you really enjoy spending time with, uh, you know, who you really value. And then all of a sudden, you know, 20 hours after your last conversation, you're suddenly you can't let go of that that reference that she made to your quote unquote bi curious haircut. <laughs> We, I, I was polling people about this on Facebook, and a person who's a regular panelist on this show said she, that she had a college boyfriend who, and I think this is a part of it, too, the person often thinks that they're maybe even complimenting you. So her college boyfriend said to her, uh, you're very beautiful despite having a big nose. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Or a friend of mine, um, she was very surprised when she looked at her yearbook to see that someone had written, whatever you may look like on the outside, your charisma <laughs> always shines through. Oh, that's really horrible. And I think part of it also is it usually touches not a nerve of something that we've always worried about or suspected about ourselves. It often touches upon something we've never given a moment. For example, the woman I'm talking about had never before thought of her nose as big and then went another 20 years of dwelling on her big nose. I mean, it activates a whole sense, a whole set of concerns we didn't have before. Exactly. Right. It's this, and then it just starts metastasizing. Um, by the way, if any of you need to get one of these things off your chest, either one that you've committed or one that you have received, you may call us right now. We're live in the afternoon at 860-275-7266. You can say afterwards, you had a chance to talk about this with Henry Alford. How many people get that chance? 860-275-7266. You may also tweet us online at WNPR Colin. So, Henry, one of the things that I was thinking about, first of all, I, I think we would both have to admit that we've probably done this ourselves to other people because because the unintentionality of this is is a lot of what goes with it oh absolutely no is that that yeah usually these are unwitting comments and and so i was even thinking about the word actually uh, <laughs> i know between actually and literally adverbs have taken such a beating yeah well i was for example we had i had an incident I could probably even say the actual names of the two people. So they're regular guests on this show. So I was uh, sitting with uh, Bill Curry and with Steve Metcalf, and we were listening to a piece of music. And Bill Curry made an observation about the piece of music. I can't remember what the observation was. And Steve turned to him and said, actually, Bill, that's a good point. (laughs) (laughs) To the contrary, Bill. Yeah, that actually is a really tricky one. But I think it brings up this interesting point that because it is a, a lighter offense as compared with some of these other ones, um, what you find is that the more open to interpretation the comment, uh, the more revelatory of the person who feels maligned. So if someone does actually to you and, you fee- and you're pissed off, I think that tells me m- more about you than about the person who said actually. Well, I think also, you know, and I think as you you encapsulate wonderfully in your piece, the problem with this, the thing that makes it much more difficult. I mean, if a person attacks you frontally, you know, if someone says to me, look, you're an idiot and your show is terrible and I can't stand you. I mean, I don't know. That's uh, I'm I'm pretty much done with that after 30 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever. I mean, what what, what can you do about that? I mean, it is this is just somebody who doesn't like you. And yeah. then there are going to be people who don't like you if you go through life thinking that there aren't 
aren't, you're either Justin Bieber or a crazy person. I mean, we're assuming that there's a difference. Uh, you know, people are going to dislike you. Whereas this is, because as you're saying, some of the malignancy of this, some of the half-life of it is that you can't quite really establish, you know, uh, what it was. It wasn't, it didn't feel like somebody trying to hurt you, but it right. hurt. Yeah, precisely. And, and unlike a fight, there's no catharsis. Uh, that it is, yeah, the, just this kind of little found treasure that you're going to have to pick at and pick at until you deem its worth. And um, by the way, yes, if anybody needs to get one off your chest, and I realize this would probably be a hard thing to talk about on the radio, but our number is 860-275-7266. Now, Henry Alford, I think the other thing is that it's sometimes what, what it really reveals, it lays bare two different sets of understandings about a single situation. And I, I did think, think of one where this happened to me. I was uh, commenting, actually, in print, so there was no way to get away from it either. Uh, I was commenting, uh, I was referring to this, um, this marching band, this musical group that, that appears around this city. They're called the Hartford, the Hartford Hot Several. And I referred to them as a semi-ironic marching band. Uh, and I, on, fa on Facebook, I was sort of treated to the spectacle of their leader puzzling over this remark. He apparently doesn't think of it as a semi-ironic marching band. He thinks of it as a musical ensemble. And so right there, you know, <laughs> we've revealed two different sets of understandings. I, I thought I was joining with him in, in celebrating the, the ironicness of all, of all this. Yeah. No, I think yeah, that's one of the two big groups of these comments is there's one that's a, a misperception of you. Uh, so something like what you just cited, or if someone says to you, oh, you liked that movie? Really? Because that, you know, that makes you, uh, what you're hearing there is, you know, you have bad taste. Um, and then the second, I think the second big category are, yeah, the comments that that validates something that you secretly feared about yourself. Um, yes, it, it, the comments that you, and sometimes also, I mean, mostly the things that we're talking about, these offhand slights, are, are as we say, m not intended to be hurtful. Although sometimes, I think the other category, I, I don't know if I, that I have a good example of this that comes to hand, is a person revealing how little they've thought of you all along, and, and that they have... <laughs> <laughs> and they have probably been kind of concealing their contempt for you, but somehow or other it slipped out in, yeah. in the syntax of what they're saying. Right. Well, I, this sort of brings to mind that um, I spoke with a woman who was the um, first African-American woman to uh, be on both North and South Poles. And during one of her treks, um, someone walked up to her and said, what hotel did you stay at on the North Pole? Um, and that's the kind of comment, yeah, that betrays a total ignorance and perhaps a disinterest in the person he's talking to. We have uh, actually somebody looking for a counseling here uh, with Henry Alford, Henry Alford, an expert on modern manners and mores and the author of Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That? A guide, a modern guide to manners. Sales of this book uh, invariably skyrocket when he appears on our show. So make sure you leave immediately after you hear the show and go get this book. But um, uh, here's Brett in Newington. Brett, I think you might need to turn your radio down. I think I feel as though I, I hear the radio uh, in the background. Uh, then there you go. So the, the, otherwise you'll be in a terrible time warp. So do, do you have a, a question or an observation? Um, an, an apology to the 
to no one who will chance upon this. I uh, inadvertently, I, I, I spice my conversation daily with wit and sarcasm. And I was overhearing someone talk about someone else. I used to race motorcycles, talking about another racer who, and they said, oh, he races well. And I just, under my breath, loud enough for them to hear. I said, well, he races. Yeah. And, yeah, that's that's a little crass from, uh, you know, multi-regional national champion. But it was with friends. It, it was with associates, and it was kind of sort of just, joking around, but it was, I apologize. Well, yeah, I think, first of all, it's good that you're apologizing. Are you a multi-regional national champion, or is he a multi-regional national champion? I am. You are. Well, Which see, makes me a bigger beep. Yeah, I, I think, I don't, I don't mean to speak for Henry Alford, who may have his own deep thoughts about this, Henry being as immersed in the competitive motorcycle world as he is. <laughs> but um, I, I feel as though with great power become, comes great responsibility, Brad. And you, yes. as a multi-regional national motorcycling champion, you, you know, it's, it, it befits you, or, or perhaps it behooves you, to wear the crown of greatness. Uh, with more, what, uh, charm and, and, and affection. Yes, well, I agree. Tiffin, I national I'll... champion had once told me that the best thing to say on the podium is boost up the second and third place because the better they look, mm-hmm. you beat them. Right. The better you look. Yeah. Not, oh, it was easy. I had no problems. It was just a ride <laughs> in the park. No, that's wrong. All right. Salute your competitors. All right, Henry, this is your chance to instruct somebody. Uh, and as I say, I mean, I you take a backseat to nobody in your expertise about the competitive motorcycling world. And most motorcycles don't have backseats anyway. Uh, true. <laughs> and, well, I think with your multi-regional national motorcycle champions that no one is expecting you to weigh in on other people's prowess at that sport. I think, you know, what we expect from that person is a steely look of determination. So I think that, you know, in the future, if Brett is the recipient of any of these kind of comments, I think just grit the lips, uh, you know, make sure the hair is very tousled, uh, and and I think the, uh, the moment will pass. One of the things that you found out is even people who are in um, communion with divinity are not immune from the slings and arrows of this offhand remark. Wasn't there a, a pastor who uh, was haunted by what would seem to be actually a, a neutral remark? Oh, that was interesting? Was that, was that the remark? Yeah, um, right. So uh, um, uh, Father Frank Desiderio, who is a preacher— um, told me that, yeah, when people are spilling out of the chapel and all saying, oh, good homily, Father, thank you, Father, that um, the comment that always sticks in his craw is the person who says, that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, so, yeah. ex- exactly, even the, even the, the barobed and the, and the professionally wise are, are not immune from this. But, but some of that, I feel, is regional. You know, I, I feel I, I had a friend who um, who left uh, a job in private education here on the East Coast, have worked in, in a couple of East Coast milieus uh, and, and moved to a very prestigious uh, school in Minneapolis or the greater Minneapolis area. And, and he would note that, you know, you'd go to see something. Uh, say a piece of drama that was very challenging, you know, uh, and and that m- might stir up a very profound emotions, either of admiration 
or contempt or disturbance, and that uh, walking out of that with a bunch of Midwesterners, uh, he would hear people going, well, that was different. That was different. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, Yeah, it's it's open to interpretation. Um, It's the same with the person who, in that same theater setting, you know, the person who rushes up to uh, a performer and says, that was so brave. Uh, that's either the loveliest thing that that performer has heard or the most damning. I, it's a long story, but I uh, walked off stage one time with a, um, having performed kind of accidentally uh, with um, a very well-known singer, Marie McGovern, who, uh, as we walked off stage, turned to me and said, not a great key for you, was that? <laughs> <laughs> There's no morning after for you. There was Colin. no. There was a very good, uh, nice catch with that cultural reference. So Henry Alfred, as we as we begin to wrap things up here, I feel like we need to leave people with something. You know, I mean, and and I found reading your article to be anxiety provoking because I thought, well, I mean, you know, I've been just running my mouth here on planet Earth for decades. I'm sure I've done this. I'm sure that I've deeply. Uh, I had to come in here and ask producer Betsy Kaplan, did I ever wound you with one of my offhand remarks? I mean, setting aside the fact that I make fun of you all day long, have I ever accidentally wounded you with an offhand remark? And I think, you know, maybe we just have to give everybody amnesty for what you've done so far. Totally. Well, I am so tickled and thrilled that 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 was your reaction to the article. That's what I I hope is happening across the nation. Just a a sense of general forgiveness and an awareness that stuff happens, right? Exactly. No, and yeah, uh, no, and I mean to speak, you know, not not ironically. No, I think if you do, if you if there's a suspicion in your mind that you may have said something like that, people will love it if you bring it up and say, "Hey, was I out of line here?" And they'll let you know. They will let you know. All right, uh, Henry Alford. Uh, the best manners that uh, anybody could show would be to immediately buy or order a copy of "Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That: A Guide to Modern Manners." That's Henry's book. Thanks for being with us again. Thank you so much, All right. Colin. We, in, in case of manners emergency, we will break glass and get you uh, back out again. We're going to take a little break right now, and we'll come back with a conversation about the complexion of sports managers, and I do mean that in multiple senses. All right, we've come to the moment in the program where ordinarily a Kion Wolf um, says the credits, uh, so I will I will do that now. First of all, uh, Kion Wolf is off today. Uh, that means Betsy Kaplan's are running the board in addition to producing the entire show. Uh, Jonathan McNichol is in there assisting her right now, and uh, Josh Nalea uh, is manning the, the phones because we also have no interns right now. So everybody's doing a, a lot of things, and somebody, of course, is playing uh, the part of Bill Curry. I think it's probably Dusty Baker. Uh, and obviously we have a wonderful website at WNPR.com. Org, where you can get a show page with all the audio from today and photographs and stuff, but also lots of uh, work by our wonderful news department and all of our archive shows. And So go to WNPR.org. Tomorrow well, you will hear a show. We actually recorded it last week, but, uh, but it will feel live to you. We are live from the Great Hall of Dinosaurs in the Peabody Museum in New Haven. Uh, we will be surrounded by dinosaurs, talking about dinosaurs with people who know dinosaurs best. 
so what could be better than that? So uh, join us for that uh, at our regular time. And you will hear Kyle and Wolf on that show, too. All right. So. And thanks, by the way, to Greg Hill, who d- handles our Twitter uh, feed at WNPR Colin. So for our final segment, we wanted to talk about um, something that had kind of escaped my attention. Uh, I do follow baseball, but uh, I, I'm mostly concerned with the fortunes of the Boston Red Sox. And uh, I had sort of failed to notice that, in fact, the, uh, that the Atlanta Braves, uh, in getting rid of their manager early in the season here, had um, uh, eliminated the last Hispanic or Latino a manager in baseball right now. I would add to that that I think there are only two African-American managers at this point, Dave Roberts and Dusty Baker. Maybe I'm missing somebody. Uh, But joining us to talk about all this is uh, Mina Kimes, senior writer and columnist at ESPN, the magazine. First of all, welcome. And second of all, am I saying your name correctly? You said it perfectly. Oh, good. So um, let's first of all talk about this issue of, of Latino managers. Obviously, the workforce uh, that is managed by managers in baseball uh, is um, heavily Latino. How heavily Latino is it? Uh, as of the last count, so on opening day, it was about 30%. And obviously, there's zero managers. And you were correct in saying there's only two non-white managers in all of baseball right now. And, and so one of the things that, that you've looked at uh, and talked about is, the, well, are there any candidates? Well, it would seem, first of all, with a 30 percent Latino workforce playing baseball, uh, that there would be a lot of candidates. And there are a lot of candidates. Uh, and, and they're, for some reason or another, not getting the offers. Do you get a sense from them as to why they feel that that's not happening? I think that's the big question, right? I mean, yeah. there are candidates, Sandy Alomar, Manny Acta, who's the Mariners now, Joey Cora. And Cora, you know, as a former player, gave a great interview to ESPN late last week where he talked about the lack of opportunities and was trying to puzzle through why none of these candidates are able to break through or why it's happening so intermittently. And he's interviewed for many jobs and has talked about sort of feeling like those interviews uh, might have been sort of just for the face of it and not actually real interviews with real opportunities. Right. He actually um, parsed that a little bit more finely. We should first of all say that Joey Cora has been managing off and on in the minor leagues since I think like 2003. So it's not as though uh, he hasn't done this kind of work or paid the kind of dues that major league managers often pay. But he, he talked about how there's kind of a selling rule, uh, which is that uh, that major league clubs, when they look for a manager, uh, need to at least consider um, uh, Latino or minority candidates. Uh, and that he felt in, in some cases, as though a box were being checked, that in talking to him, they were satisfying that requirement of having talked to somebody. Yeah, he talked about doing an interview where they didn't even know that he had gone to Vanderbilt, which led him to believe that they hadn't looked into him at all and weren't seriously considering him as a candidate. you got to think if you're interviewing with somewhere, they might at least have some familiarity of your background, right? And the senior role, and you hit on something really important there, which is it actually only says that teams have to consider candidates It doesn't say like the Rooney rule in the NFL that they have to interview them. So there are a lot of situations in baseball where it's unclear whether these candidates are even coming through the door. You know, last year in Miami, they hired an insider as a manager, and there there were a lot of questions over whether they had actually taken a serious look at any minority candidates. 
you know, we're talking to Mina Kimes from ESPN, the magazine. So uh, there are a lot of questions here that are unanswerable unless somebody decides to be like a whistleblower from inside Major League Baseball. We'll never know the answer to to a, a lot of these questions. But we should even observe that there was a moment in, I think, late October carrying forward uh, into the winter uh, where Major League Baseball had no managers of color. They had fired a whole bunch of them uh, in the offseason and and neither Baker uh, nor Roberts had been hired by their respective teams, teams Washington and and the Dodgers. Um, So there weren't any managers of color. And and you have to think, Mina, that this seems counterproductive also at the level of baseball needing to keep a diversified audience, needing to to have teams that look like the rest of America and relate to the rest of America. Absolutely. The sport has major demographic concerns about, you know, getting too old and too white and its fan base. And also you'd think that with so many of the players um, speaking Spanish, it would be a huge advantage, right, to have a manager who can speak Spanish. And this isn't just a problem, I think, with managers. It's also with GMs and uh, presidents. I think there's only four non-white GMs. And Cora brought this up in his interview. He was saying, you know, maybe we need to start mm-hmm. focusing on that side to the guys who are actually hiring these managers uh, aren't all white. So I, I have to say that, uh, yeah, you called our attention to the Cora article on the ESPN website. So I, God help me, I looked at the comment thread, and it, okay. it, it looked like a Trump rally. I mean, the, the stuff that people were saying was kind of stomach-turning uh, yeah. in its uh, level of vituperation and dismissiveness of Cora's arguments. Um, and And... You know, that made me wonder. I mean, obviously, uh, Major League Baseball doesn't make its decisions based on what trolls say on common threads. But I wondered if the the two were completely unyoked. And I guess what I'm saying is, you know, it may still be that the Major League front office thinks, well— you know, if we have Ryan Sandberg as our manager, you know, and he's kind of the face of the club to whatever extent a manager is the face of the club, you know, in terms of the constituency that we are courting right now and that we do uh, try to connect with, uh, given the fact that, you know, that, that the audience is still kind of white. I mean, it, it may just be that. It may be, the, you know, we can just sell more tickets with Ryan Sandberg as our manager. I think what's happening in baseball and football, right, and and major sports is something that happens in corporate America where minorities are also underrepresented on boards and in the executive suite. It's not unique to sports. Some of it is just a legacy of discrimination, but all of it, a lot of it, I think, also is just networks. Uh, You know, a lot of these Mm. people hire their friends. They network the, you know, the whole good old boy thing, I think, still happens. So, a lot of it might not be deliberate or intentional, but unless there are checks in place to ensure that these candidates are actually considered, you do end up leaning on the same old faces for these jobs. And, you know, when we have these conversations, too, it brings up a, a, a dis, an area of discomfort. Like, I uh, I don't have anything against Brian Price, who's the manager of the Cincinnati Reds, uh, and it's probably not his fault that they're a terrible team. They are kind of terrible, uh, and they're dead last. I mean, he's in his third season uh, with nothing to show for it. They, in fact, fired Dusty Baker, uh, whose record was way better with the Reds and now has the Nationals paying, playing over 600, to get to Brian Price. But you sort of wonder, you know, in terms of that network and in terms of the way things are understood, I mean, he's been the manager since 2014. Uh, you you wonder whether their patience goes a little bit further for him than, say, the Braves did with the manager they fired. 
this was a question that came up last year in football with Lovey Smith in Tampa Bay, you know, where he was, I think a lot of people were surprised when he was let go quickly after making some improvements. Um, and, and, you know, we don't know, right? They're not going to say, nobody's going to come out and say it. I think um, you can draw inferences. But last year I did a column on the Rooney role and why there were so few African-American coaches and uh, GMs in the NFL. And some scientists had looked at the promotions of candidates and found that uh, at the lower levels, uh, minority coaches took longer to become coordinators than white coaches, even with the same background, experience, success level, all variables held constant. So when you actually look at this from a rigorous analytical standpoint, I think you do see that maybe the discrimination is not outright, but it certainly exists. One of the other things we know is that the press, the sports press is also kind of white, right? Absolutely. It, it, extraordinarily uh, underrepresented minority whites for both the non-white and women. Um, one of the things that you wrote about, you've written about previously, too, is the role of women in Major League Baseball. There, are, I have to say, one of the joys for me of this year has been having a woman in the booth for a national for national Major League Baseball uh, broadcast on Monday nights. And she's terrific, and I really like her, and I think she adds a ton. And I'm thinking, why? Well, I know the Yankees uh, had somebody, uh, have had somebody for quite a while. But, I mean, there's so many jobs in Major League Baseball that you would think that women would be heavily recruited for. Uh, this is something you've looked at. What did you find? So I looked at this actually in the wake of the Ray Rice issue and some of the NFL's, you know, public relations problems, expecting baseball to be better uh, in terms of representation, diversity. What I actually found was that the NFL had taken great steps to recruit women and promote them to higher ranking roles. And in MLB, it had actually gotten worse over the last few years. Um, the central office staff, the percent of women has declined. Only 18% of vice presidents on the teams are women, and that hasn't gotten better in years. You know, you would expect to see some improvement there, but there really wasn't. Um, and and you, you, well, one would expect to see that and would expect to see that maybe even in the ranks of umpires. Is it, is it just mm -hmm. too big a, a culture to overturn uh, and and I, maybe before I ask you that question, another thing that we could say about all this is it doesn't start in the major leagues. It's, it's all over the place. And certainly in, even in the college ranks, top ranking uh, college baseball programs do not have managers of color. color. I mean, they're even worse at it, I think, than, uh, than, yeah. than the major leagues are. So I mean, is, is there just a pervasiveness about this culture and it's so finely grained that you can't get change? You know, with sports, the argument you always hear is, well, they didn't play, uh, which is ridiculous. I think, and especially in baseball, where so many analytics-driven uh, GMs who definitely didn't play and are not athletes have been successful. So you ask, why can't women as well? And, and we're not talking even about entirely baseball roles, right? When I say vice presidents, I mean community relations and marketing and all of that stuff. So there's no reason why, other than possibly a smaller candidate pool, um, it's inexplicable, and I do think that the league has shown signs of trying to fix it, um, but it is an uphill battle. Um, once again, it does seem as though you want your face to look like the faces of the people that you're whose approval you're trying to court. And so, one of the things, one of the ways in which professional sports grow and have grown is by attracting a female audience. So, I mean, that's why Jessica Mendoza yeah. seems like such a great idea. You know, to to hear a woman's voice uh, on a national telecast just seems like a no-brainer. Absolutely, you always hear about growing in other countries and trying to find untapped markets. Well, there's an enormous untapped market in the United States, and it's 
50% of the country. So, you know, why wouldn't these teams in all of these sports be doing everything they can to try to court that from a business perspective, I think is a little incomprehensible. Uh, I'll tell you, as uh, reading your stuff and, and, and reading some of the stuff that you uh, recommended that we read, uh, I, my, one, my one final insight about this is a fairly depressing one. But if you want to find minorities uh, on the coaching staffs of Major League Baseball teams, you look at a lot of other kinds of jobs. And in particular, there's like almost a trope uh, of the black batting coach. You know, you look at the National League mm-hmm. teams. There's a lot of African-American batting coaches. And to me, there's something a little disturbing about that. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, we, we trust you to teach people how to do what you did very well. We don't trust you to think more comprehensively about stuff or manage strategies or uh, work with people and, and work with a sort of cohesive plan for implementing the talents of 25 or so players. We just trust you to talk about the thing that you used to do so well. Yeah, and that's a problem in football as well, where there's a real absence of black quarterback coaches, for example, which tend to be the positions that get promoted to become offensive coordinators, which then go on to become coaches. So it is there is a sense of, I think, compartmentalization going on that trickles upwards. Not, which is not to say that I would look forward to the idea of Barry Bonds as a major league <laughs> manager. He is a, a batting coach right now. I think that's probably maybe the limit of what he has to offer in that particular regard. But there's lots of other people who could offer so much more. Mina Kimes, this is fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This is Mina Kimes, senior writer and columnist at ESPN, the magazine. Uh, as we're heading out here, I'll mention a few other things coming up this week. I've already told you that we will have our show from the Peabody. We're really excited about this show. Uh, if you haven't been keeping up with dinosaurs, well, I, actually, I'll just say you haven't been keeping up with dinosaurs. Almost by definition, you haven't. But anyway, we'll be telling you stuff about dinosaurs that you just didn't know or didn't realize. And also telling you a little bit about the nature of this particular museum. It's a museum with a pretty amazing history. And we certainly will have people who know about as much about dinosaurs as anybody is ever going to know as our guests. Uh, and on Wednesday, we'll be talking to Buzz Aldrin live on the air. You could actually call in and say something to Buzz Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin, I don't know, he excites people in, in a certain way. Uh, on, we're not 100% sure on Thursday. We think it's going to be a show about the concept of hydration. Uh, (laughs) Is that for a diverse lineup? Uh, And then on Friday, it'll be the nose. We are actually talking uh, on the nose about Maria Bamford's new Netflix series. You might want to watch a few episodes of that just to get ready. It's called Lady Dynamite. All right. That's all for today. Thanks to everybody who helped out. We'll talk to you tomorrow. 